So yesterday we looked at one chapter, but I thought I'd have a quick overview of some of the prophets first of all, and then come to this passage uh, today. And then tomorrow we're going to look at one book, um, uh, one prophetic book. Tolstoy, what a way to start. Tolstoy said, he who wants an easy life has been born in the wrong generation. Well, if that's true of Tolstoy's generation, it's certainly true of ours. We're all, everybody perhaps is familiar to some extent with some of the Bible stories. Noah, David and Goliath perhaps, uh, a little bit about the Lord Jesus, maybe some even know about the conversion of Saul. And I think we as Christians, we're very familiar, we hear sermon after sermon on some of the very familiar themes of the Bible. So we go to the book of Psalms, we, we sometimes have quotations from the book of Proverbs. There are sermons about the Sermon on the Mount, and even non-Christians will refer to the Sermon on the Mount. And, of course, some non-Christians will look at the book of Revelation, etc. But 66 books in the Bible, as you know, 17 of them, 17, and four of them are quite lengthy, were written by the prophets. So that's one-third of the Bible is devoted to the prophets, 16 prophets altogether, of course, Jeremiah and Lamentations, the the same author, but... um, 17 books, one-third of the Bible is given over to the prophets, but greatly neglected, I suspect, in our daily readings and certainly in our, in our preaching in churches. And I think there are some reasons for that. Some of the truths are not politically correct these days, and so it's very easy just to overlook them. They cover a period of 500 years, basically, vaguely, from 1000 B.C. to 500 B.C. And in the New Testament, of course, we regularly... Uh, and repeatedly read that God spoke through the prophets. This was done to fulfill what the prophets said. The prophets began really at the time of Samuel, and they were raised up by God in the dark days of Israel and Judah's history. Uh, Basically, they only spoke when the people were walking in disobedience to God. So when they were out of step with the Lord... God sent these prophets to point them back to the right way. I think they're an amazing, amazing group of people. They dared to speak against the trends. They dared to speak against what was accepted uh, by society. They spoke against the people, and of course the people was their people. They spoke fearlessly. They spoke not only to the people, they certainly did that, but they spoke to the kings. Um, We're going to look at a story of that in just a moment. They spoke to the princes. Maybe they, you know, the princes could be more arrogant than even some of the kings. They spoke to the priests who were so well established in their religious routine and yet had drifted far from the Lord. They spoke and challenged the priests. They spoke, and maybe this is the most difficult thing, I don't know. They spoke to the false prophets of the day. They turned their back on a quiet comfortable, routine life and spoke truth to the nation. They rebuked sin. And when they spoke, there was always going to be some sort of uproar as they called the people from idolatry and exposed the formalism of their religion. And that was never going to sit comfortably. They used phrases like, thus says the Lord. Or, the word of the Lord came to me. Uh, God said, for example, to Jeremiah, he said, I have put my words in your mouth. And those were the words that they went out then and spoke to the people. Now, what, what I think is very interesting about the prophets is there was such a variety 
of characters and, and what a variety you know we, we we've got here we 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 you know we we have a Stuart Burgess who's somewhere up there and then me somewhere well can't even see it so you know what a variety of personalities and abilities etc well it was just the same for the prophets Isaiah I mentioned yesterday probably the king's physician certainly an aristocratic man a statesman and he's the prophet. Now, I don't, I don't understand Hebrew. I've never been to Bible college in my life, so I never learned Hebrew or Greek or anything. <coughs> I do know a little Greek. He runs a takeaway down. You've heard that one before. Okay. And, <coughs> and um, uh, it's, a, it's a funny joke, is that? Because we've all heard it dozens of times, but every time you hear it, you always want to laugh, don't you? It's, it's, anyway. And, uh, uh, but I understand Isaiah's Hebrew is a very sophisticated Hebrew. Say, in contrast to Amos, who was just a shepherd and a, a dresser of sycamore trees, and uh, apparently it's a very crude sort of Hebrew. I wouldn't know. <laughs> I don't know the difference between sophisticated English and crude English. But, uh, but you know, so I gather. But a- Amos, the, do you remember the man who said, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet? Or Jeremiah, the man taken from obscurity, from a little town, Anathoth, near Jerusalem, and um, he had an illustrious ancestry. His father was a priest, but he was taken, he was timid, he didn't particularly want to do what he was called to do. He, he experienced being beaten and imprisoned and exiled. But he could not keep quiet. As he said, quote, a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary of trying to hold it in. And I, I, I just cannot, I must speak. This is Jeremiah, wonderful. And then Daniel, this captive who becomes prime minister. In Babylon. Isn't that incredible? And he was a prophet, of course. Ezekiel. I love Ezekiel. I, I just, I have a sort of a natural affinity with eccentrics. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says, mavericks make the ministry. Well, he was a maverick. He, a wonderful man was Ezekiel and the things he had to do. But he was both prophet and priest. And then Micah. Again, just an ordinary, uneducated character. And then Zechariah, who, who really was a tender man. He, he seeks to encourage his people. And uh, he has at least, some of you may find more, I don't know, but at least 13 different specific prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. They spoke a message to their own age. Now we read it and we can apply it to our day and age, and, and rightly so. These things were written for our learning, for our edification. But, but nevertheless, they were speaking directly to their age. They rebuked sin. They were very specific about the sins that they put their finger on. There were eternal principles of right and wrong. I don't know whether you heard that awful interview of Philip Schofield with Andrea Williams. I, I don't watch... Um, I don't watch much television, I don't watch morning television at all, but I saw it on YouTube, and where she stands up, first of all, against the transgender movement that we're going to be looking at later today, and then he links it with homosexuality. They always deny there's a link, but he linked it straight away, and when she began to speak, he just, did you see it, just shouted over and uh, said her views were obnoxious and medieval. Oh, that's an interesting phrase. Her views were medieval. Yes, they were, and they are medieval. But they were also Victorian. 
and they're also 20th century, and they're also 21st century. And actually, they're probably the views of the majority still in the UK today, and certainly the majority in the world today. But no, 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 you just come out with this slanderous sort of word. I wrote to Philip Schofield, but of course he hasn't replied, and I just said, I hope you'll find it within you to apologize publicly for the way you showed your bias and were so rude towards her. But they don't mind that. Piers Morgan, just the same. Um, Stephen Fry has done the same, etc. But no, these are eternal principles of right and wrong, and these are the ones that, um, that the prophets spoke. And they constantly appealed to the honor of God. It was interesting um, today in the, um, um, in, the, in the prayer meeting, Sharon, in her prayer, was praying along the same lines, appealing for the honor of the Lord. And, and that's exactly what they did. They, of course, spoke about the future. Um, they, they prophesied about the birth of Jesus and him going into Egypt. Uh, they spoke and said that he would, he would grow up in Nazareth, that um, uh, he would be born in Bethlehem. They spoke about his ministry, his teachings, his words, his impact, and, of course, the detailed descriptions we looked at yesterday of his death and his resurrection, the impact that he would have, and, of course, um, the, the, the second coming. I, I once went through the book of Isaiah and I, I, I use squiggly lines under a phrase or a word that's repeated time and again and I underlined in the book of Isaiah the phrase in that day and all the way through the book of Isaiah he, he's constantly saying in that day, in that day something's going to happen in that day and uh, so they spoke about the future. They spoke of course about um, um, the nation rejecting God and what would be the penalty about uh, the Babylonian and Assyrian invasions, but they spoke about the, the people being scattered and all that they would happen. Israel's cities besieged. The method of attack is described. There'd be extreme famine, few left in the land, how they'd be dispersed and yet preserved as a nation. And they would always be separate from other nations. They'd be ill at ease as they tried to settle in other nations. They would remain for a long period of time without a central government. But they would eventually return to their own land and they'd settle in their own country. They're all things written in the prophets. They're, they're amazing. But they did speak primarily about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. They not only spoke about these things, but of course they illustrated them as well. You get this again in very some unusual things that Ezekiel was, was commanded to do. But I think the, the illustration of Hosea and Gomer which is so potent that he's to marry a woman who's going to defile herself. She's going to be a prostitute. And then you have to go back and buy back this woman. She is his by right. He is hers by right. They're married. But she's gone and sold herself. Now he goes and pays a price to buy her back. What an amazing gospel illustration that is. Their message was a living message. They came straight, as it were, from the throne room of heaven and they spoke to the people who would listen. When I say who would listen, so often Jeremiah says, look, it's as if you're putting your fingers in your ears. You don't want to listen. You won't listen. But nevertheless, they, they spoke. They denounced idolatry, the great sin of the people at that time. They denounced it. They set God's standards for justice and righteousness. And they urged people to acknowledge their sin and to turn from it. And to find forgiveness. So the prophets. I, I really do believe that we should all be reading regularly the prophets. Now, I say that, but I also believe that you and I are not called to be prophets. We are called to be evangelists. We are not there to denounce the sins of the nation. 
We are there to point people to Jesus Christ. And always remembering that the people to whom we speak are not our enemies. They are as we once were. We want them to be as we are now. We want them to be converted. Now, I, I, I say this, I don't know, even you may have fallen asleep already at this stage, but I say this regularly to myself. I need to hear this because naturally I become incredibly sort of inwardly cross about, um, about certain things and certain people. So my wife often goads me about the people I don't like who come on television. Uh, now she does like some of them, but there we are. I just don't, and I know who's right. And um, uh, but, but she always has a go at me about, oh, well, who do you like? But I, I see them. I think, oh, such an immoral lifestyle. Such a, and, so, and so it goes on. But we are to love the people. This is my feeling, and it would be interesting to hear what Sharon says, and uh, you know, who am I to speak when she's going to deal with these issues. But it seems to me in my lifetime there have been three major acts of Parliament that have turned the nation against the Gospel. Now, she may say different ones, but I think um, David Steele's Abortion Act in 1967, and I cannot believe that our nation has aborted Nine million unborn, that's just England and Wales, nine million unborn babies. And what I'm about to say is very politically incorrect, but nevertheless, the Queen signed that. The King of Belgium abdicated rather than sign a bill for abortion. He abdicated, he said, I will not do that. But everybody loves to say the Queen is this wonderful Christian woman. She signed that bill. And I think she's culpable, as well as the MPs, the doctors, the nurses, so we can go on. That was a devastating attack on Christian things. And then, again, being very personal, I I suppose my leanings politically are more to the right than the left. But these next two things came through a conservative government. Um, the, The attack on Sunday, and Voltaire said, if you want to destroy Christianity in Britain, you have to destroy their Sabbath. And that's what John Major did. And then, of course, just recently, the um, homosexual marriage. And I don't think any of us understood quite what was going to happen because it wasn't just introducing homosexual marriage, but it was saying to the schools of our nation, right, you teach homosexuality as if it's normal. So my local comprehensive school is a stone wall school. You go down the corridors and there are posters up promoting homosexuality to children. What on earth is going on? And those three things, I think, have been a major attack. Now, I feel incredibly strongly about this. Actually, I'm writing something at the moment about abortion. I do feel very strongly. But, now this is the the impact I want you to get. We are not there to denounce, or here, to denounce the sins of the nation. We are here as evangelists to proclaim good news, to make much of the Lord Jesus I would love David Steele to be converted. I would love David Cameron to be converted. I would love some of these people on the media who are so antagonistic to be converted. I I pray for them. Nicky Campbell, I don't know whether you've ever listened to him. He's become increasingly anti-Christian as the years have gone on. But I've read his autobiography, which I don't recommend. Every page he puts swear words on, and there's no need at all for it. But... At the age of 13, he went on a scripture union camp in Scotland and he asked Jesus into his heart and they gave him some Bible reading notes and a Bible 
And he said, for three weeks I did the Bible reading notes, but nobody got in touch with me. And he went right away from it. Amazing, what a challenge to us all. And I pray for, for, um, for Nicky Campbell. Uh, I pray for Jeremy Paxman. He came from Leeds, so, you know, he's, he's well on his way to salvation, but there's a bit more to go yet, and et cetera. And uh, I, we want these people to be converted, but we're not there uh, just to denounce. We are there to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. So, yes, the, van, the, the, sorry, the prophets we can learn much from, but they are different from us in that their ministry was different from ours. And I think that's quite important to grasp. Now, let's turn to the passage that Peru's read to us. Um, and I, I love, I've always enjoyed this particular man, uh, Micaiah. He's not particularly well known, is he? But what a marvellous story. I feel a little bit out of my depth here. Warren Wearsby was once preaching in Moody Chapel in Chicago, and he went into his pulpit, and he spotted in the congregation Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, which I think would leave you feeling, I wish I'd spent a bit more time preparing this, don't you think? <laughs> And then horror of horrors, he was preaching on the book of Romans. Ah! Well, here am I going to 1 Kings, and I love David Earnshaw's ministry. And the, the highlight of all his sermons, I personally think, uh, the ones I've loved so much, he went through the book of 1 and 2 Kings. What rich, rich sermons they are. Here am I daring to go into, into uh, Kings. And he'll get very cross with me about the way I pronounce Baal. I'm sorry, David, but um, I can't do it the way you do it. He sort of belches in the middle when David does it. It's, <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> so let's let's come to let's come to the story. There's um, there's an ill-judged alliance that has been set up between King Ahab, this evil man, and Jehoshaphat. Now let's just remind ourselves a little bit about Ahab. Do you remember he previously had 450 prophets of Baal? No belch there, just Baal. Okay, 450 prophets. He he'd also had. Um, we, we have reference to the 400 prophets, uh, prophets of Asherah. So he had these idolatrous, false prophets all around him. Now we're coming to an incident where he has 400 prophets who claim to speak not for an idol, but for God. So these are so-called God's people, and they're speaking so-called God's word. This is a very, very different situation. The tragedy is it's not that difficult to get 400 prophets who will back up a king. Very interesting, David Cameron was approached when he was trying to push through this homosexual marriage thing. He was approached by a very godly, Bible-believing evangelical vicar in the Cotswolds in his constituency who put to him how this is so against what God has said in God's law. And apparently David Cameron said to this vicar, yeah, but last week I had such and such a person, Reverend so-and-so, just down the road from you, who was saying exactly the opposite. And you can believe it, can't you? Again, Andrea Williams, I heard at a conference recently, it just stunned me. She's a member of the Synod. And she said, do you know, most members of the Synod at night are drunk. I think... It, it, it just so jars with me. Here's me, a teetotaler. And then and you think, oh, this just doesn't make sense. And yet, I remember Lord Carey, 
I'm sure I'm going to get into trouble for mentioning names, but Lord Kerry, who now is sort of hailed as this evangelical ex-Archbishop of Canterbury, I I remember very clearly listening to him being interviewed by John Humphreys, who three times said to him, is Prince Charles doing wrong to have an affair with Camilla? And three times he just dodged it. He wouldn't answer. Sometime later, a sort of magazine, Christian magazine called Third Way had a picture of John Humphreys on the front. I got the magazine and read it. And they asked him, why do you not let Christians have their viewpoint put across on the BBC? Do you know what he said? He said, when we do, they don't say what they believe anyway. And he cited this particular interview. So we're in this sort of situation all these centuries ago. And, and here is Ahab, this evil king, and he surrounded himself with 400 prophets who say they're Jehovah's men, who say they're speaking on behalf of Jehovah. But Ahab hates the truth. He fears the truth, but interestingly, he must know it. He wants to know it. Verse 8, he hates it. Verse 16, he wants it. Verse 30, he fears it. And then verses 29 and 30, he defies it. But even though he so, dis, he, 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 he just dislikes what he's being said, he wants to know. And there is something still within people that is like that. So in this particular passage, we have two kings who are sitting on temporary thrones, and they are basically a council of war. They've come together to decide a war strategy. They're surrounded by these false prophets. In fact, one of them, Zedekiah, we just read about, he, he, he went over the top. He, he made iron horns and, and, and performs with them and said, this is how you'll rout the enemies, etc. And he takes a verse from Scripture, Deuteronomy 33, 17, at random, and he uses it as a sort of proof text as to what he's saying, which is false. Now, Ahab, when he calls these false prophets, he doesn't want the truth He actually just wants support. So he gathers them all around and says, please tell me what I want to hear. But Jehoshaphat, he's an interesting man, is Jehoshaphat, because there's some great strengths in him. But though really he was godly, he lacked common sense. He made some stupid decisions. And in this incident, in this setting, he smells a rat. And he feels, no, 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 there's something, quite, there's something wrong here. All these prophets all saying the same thing. Zedekiah doing this little performance. Ahab's, yeah, okay, we're, we're all going for war, etc. No, there's, there's something wrong. Now, Jehoshaphat had already given his, his support to Ahab without consulting the Lord. And yet they're wanting now God's blessing. So Jehoshaphat said, Lord, is there, is there anybody else? Is there another prophet? And Ahab says, well, yeah, there is one. Oh, dear. I, I hate him and he hates me. But there is one, yes. He, um, I don't know, he's just got a personal vendetta against me. Well, of course, the personal vendetta is really a vendetta against Ahab's sin. Now, intriguingly, again, if you go back into the life of Ahab, you'll find that He's had occasions where he's been confronted by truth before. In chapter 20, verse 42, an unknown prophet rebuked him. In chapter 21, verse 19, Elijah rebuked him. And now in chapter 21, we've got Micaiah rebuking him. But um, Jehoshaphat's request sort of sets a chain of events going. And so, okay, well, let's just hear what he says. So they call for Micaiah. He's not with these 400 And that's tough, isn't it? 
If you're involved in a church, which is, I don't know, in something like Churches Together, but your church doesn't get involved, aren't you going to take flack? Oh, all the other churches are doing this Christmas event together. Why can't you? We're all praying for our... But why can't you? You know, And it's tough, but Micaiah is separate from the other 400. So he's outnumbered, if you think about it, 400 to 1. Now, there are 100 of us here. Multiply that by 4... And all that vast crowd is against this one individual. Incredible situation. The philosophy of the false prophets was basically taken from that famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. (laughs) That was their motivation. That was the ground of their making the stand, so-called, that they were going to make. But then Micaiah arrives. There's no sycophantic longing to be approved by the king. He's not bothered about what they're wearing, the the robes, the chains, the gold, etc. The sight of the king in royal apparel does nothing to sway Micaiah. I think what endears me to him is the way he starts with sarcasm. Uh, I'm well aware that cynicism can sometimes be cynical, but uh, but this this is great sarcasm because... Um, Micaiah knows that whatever he says, he's not going to make a word of difference to Ahab and probably not to Jehoshaphat either. But uh, they ask him anyway, you know, tell us, you know, how are we going to do in, in war? And so he's sort of got his fingers crossed and he's biting his tongue. He says, oh, go up and prosper. Go up and prosper. Oh, sorry. It's uh, uh, go up and prosper. I love this. I once overheard a conversation um, I, it was, I'll, I'll mention the name because some of you know him. It was to Lance Pibworth. And somebody who was wanting to do something went to Lance and said, Lance, this is what I've got in mind. Da, 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 da. What do you think? And I'll never forget, he said, go up and prosper. This guy was lost on him completely. No idea what Lance was really doing. But he was basically saying, you're totally wrong, but you want to do it, do it. And, uh, and he did do it. We'll, <laughs> we'll leave that for the moment. But uh, just go up and prosper, he says. But it was completely cynical and um, he knew exactly what he was doing. And of course, actually, the kings did as well. And they said, oh, no, come on, tell us the truth. They didn't want the truth, but they knew he was pulling their leg. He was leading them on. So God, through Micaiah, clearly tells Ahab Ahab, that um, God himself is deceiving Ahab. Sounds a bit strange, but you look at the passage, you'll see that's exactly what happens. Three times we read of this sort of law or being enticed. It's found in verses 20, 21 and 22. But the point is, Ahab wanted it that way. Now, again, I mustn't speculate, and I'm not a politician. I'm no expert on some of the the things that we're going to hear about later on. But it it seems to me that the West seems to have been um, enticed. Lord, where, where did all the idea of homosexual marriage come from? I don't know that we were thinking about it ten years ago. And then suddenly, all across the world. And you think, oh, right, where did that come from? And how did that spread so quick? And now this transgender thing. Where did that come from? In just two or three years? Well, well okay. Everybody's... And, and I just wonder whether sometimes the Lord just sends these lying spirits. You don't want the truth. So you can't have the truth. I'll deceive you. I'll send you on your little cul-de-sacs and see where it leads. Well, Micaiah speaks the truth. I I see the nation scattered. I see you all being defeated. 
I don't know whether his heart was pounding at this stage. Mine would have been. And, and of course, if your heart is pounding, you can react by going either too uh, sort of aggressive or just too meek. I, I don't know. He spoke the truth very, very faithfully. It's a bit, you know, it's Lutherish, isn't it? It's, Here I stand. I can do no other. And again, he had these hundreds of Roman prelates and priests around him, and yet he says it. So powerful. I don't know whether you've ever seen that old black and white film of Martin Luther, but that, that section where he says, here I stand, I can do no ever. Oh, it sends a shiver down my spine. It, it's fantastic. And this is Micaiah. So what do they do? Do they say, oh, thank you, we begged you to tell us the truth. Thank you for telling us. Now they come and hit him on the cheek. And we don't want you. And throw him in prison. Don't give him any food. Don't give him any water. Incredible. And then Micaiah dares to say, Well, if you win, just know that God did not send me. The vindication will be what has happened. And again, you sort of look at our nation, you'd love to say, why do we think we've got all these problems, all these issues? But that's a different different, uh, subject. The book of Proverbs, chapter 9, verse 8 says, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man. And he will love you. Or to go to the New Testament, it's a little bit like the Apostle Paul writing to the Galatians and he says, have I become your enemy because I've told you the truth? Well, that's Micah. And it's many, many Christians in today's society. Ahab is really angry. And yet he's the one who's evil. He's a weak man who didn't think he was ever doing any wrong. But as I said, Micah further expounds what he said. So, this chapter, verses 1 to 28 that we had read to us, the word is rejected. But verses 29 to 40, which we didn't read, the word is fulfilled. So, despite what God has said through Micaiah, Ahab still wants to go into battle, and he does so in disguise, as if God can't see through disguise, you know. He won't notice me under this this disguise. No, he goes, and of course he gets killed. You can't hoodwink God. Now, Jehoshaphat goes actually in his normal royal robes, and of course he survives. Really, with regard to Ahab, the only test, the only thing that matters about him is how he stacks up against the word of God, and he just falls down. Somebody drew a bow at random, and it got him between the armour, and... uh, and he was, well, as somebody said, he was, the, 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 the arrow was guided by a higher hand. Let me quote Alexander McLaren. I don't know whether you know Alexander McLaren, but he lived at the same time as Spurgeon. And they used to exchange their books. McLaren was in um, Manchester, Spurgeon, of course, in London. And they'd exchange their volumes. You can sometimes, well, I think you can probably get them new, uh, but you can sometimes get secondhand his set of volumes. It's like this, and you pay about £80, £100. Do you know they are so valuable, so helpful. I never prepare any sermon without going to McLaren just to see. He doesn't cover everything, but just to make sure, uh, find out what he said. He always has interesting insights. He's worth getting his Alexander McLaren. Anyway, he said on this, Ahab was plated all over with iron and brass, but there's always a crevice through which God's arrow can find its way, and when God's, when, where God's arrow finds its way, it kills and uh, that's exactly what happened. Well, that, that's the incident. Those are the prophets. This is one prophet. What's the relevance to us, us today? Well, 
I, I want to draw out a few things from his example and that of the prophets as well first. Our message is not ours to choose. So we are called to be faithful with the message that God has given us. Ahab assumed that the prophet can control what he says. Look, uh, chapter, verses 8 and verses 13. Look, look you, can't, you just, just says something nice. In fact, some of the people taking him to the king said, yeah, you know, just say something nice to him. But the true person who's preaching the word of God can't just adjust their message. They didn't understand Micaiah's position. We cannot choose. Somebody said to me, though, and I just throw this as a disturbing aside. Somebody said to me about a year ago, Roger, why can't you evangelicals just change what you feel about homosexuality? And I said, you can't do that. It is the word of God. You know, quick as a flash, he came back. I said, well, you changed what you think about divorce, didn't you? Ooh, that's an interesting one. Anyway, I'll just throw that out. We cannot change it. We, we have standards. We have biblical principles. We have the word of God. And as evangelists, we have the gospel. The prophet or the evangelist, indeed, the Christian, is bound by the word of God. We are not at liberty to alter or change in any way, to massage, to pervert, to compromise the word of God. There are key truths that we must, must, must get over. If you go through the book of Acts and look at the sermons, the evangelistic sermons preached there, they all have two ingredients. All of them have these two. The resurrection of Jesus. Well, of course, for there to be a resurrection, there must have been death. So the death and the resurrection of Jesus and repentance. When did you last hear repentance preached? Pete Hodge sent me a text yesterday with a quotation that went, I haven't got it word for word, but it's more or less, the society is calling for tolerance, we are to call for repentance. Now, it isn't easy to preach repentance, because we're asking people, we're asking a nation, but we're asking people to acknowledge that they are sinners, that they have to humble themselves. We're, there's no pride, because we can't get up to God. God has to come to reach and rescue us. You need to turn from that which is offensive to God. These are not easy things to say. Now, don't misunderstand. I preach the love of God. I, I'm sure I preach it in every sermon. But there is the justice of God. There is the holiness of God. There is the need to turn and, in repentance, believe. We cannot change our message. In Luke's Gospel, um, Jesus is giving the Great Commission and there are different emphases that each of the gospel writers sort of focus on in the Great Commission. But Luke focuses on what is our message. And there are four things he says that we're to go to Jerusalem and then to the nations. And there we're to preach his suffering, his resurrection, repentance and forgiveness. I, I, I trust that in every evangelistic message, I will always preach the cross on one occasion. <laughs> Gerard Crispin said, you didn't preach the cross tonight. I said, Gerard, you fell asleep tonight. And, uh, <laughs> but, anyway, but maybe he was right, I don't know. But I don't think he was. But I always seek to explain the hidden work of Jesus on the cross. That when he was on the cross, God took our sin and laid it on Jesus. So just to say he died to save us, just he died that we might be forgiven, that doesn't particularly make sense. We have to explain. He was taking the judgment. He was taking the penalty. 
This great exchange, our sin laid on him, that he might lay on us his righteousness. And then this same Jesus is, is risen. Um, I, I often get people sending me tracts and they say, Roger, I've written this. Um, any thoughts on it, please? And, I, and I'm very happy to, to look at them. And do you know, time and again, probably 50, 60% of them, I have to say, there's no mention of Jesus rising from the dead. Which is the most important the cross of Christ or the resurrection of Christ, my answer would be what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. They're the two sides of the one great truth. He has died for us, he's been buried, he's risen. Our response, to repent. His response, if you want, is he forgives us. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Popular religion, like an old shoe is very easy to slip on and take off without any difficulty. And that's what they're doing. Certainly, oh, I just can't believe that. We'll, we'll discard that. Oh, that's quite nice. We'll put that on and etc. The nonsense, the nonsense that people are believing. Where have we got to? But it's this. Now, interestingly, I, I find this very helpful because somewhere there's a right balance here. James Dobson uh, on, on bringing up children, this is his illustration about bringing up children. He says we've got to bring up children with tremendous care. He said, it's like handling a bar of soap. If you handle it too tightly, <laughs> it pops out. If you handle it too loosely, it slips out of your hand. Now that's true, isn't it, in parenting. Are you too aggressive, too firm, too strict? But on the other hand, do we just let the, no, no, and, and to get that, Perfect grip is very, very difficult. And, and in preaching as well, we're not, we're not angry. We love these people. There, there's a passion, there's a care, there's a love, and yet we have to be faithful to the truth. People today want their religion, but they want a religion that just sort of adorns their lifestyle, their behavior, not restrains it. And... Um, it, I don't know, so much of our religion is just toothless. It just, um, it sanctions everything. And, and please, will you just bless this? In fact, we do want this sort of marriage or what, what you know, it's, we'll go along with anything just to sort of keep the crowds. Micah was urged not to sour the atmosphere, or if you want to put it differently, don't spoil the party. That's really what they were saying to him. But he says, no, no, verse 14, I've got to tell it as it is. And this idea of not being judgmental. Go through the book of, uh, go through Acts chapter 17 with Paul in um, Athens. It's very interesting what Paul is saying. He, there's a load of negatives there. He stands up and he says, God does not dwell in temples that you have made. Well, all these majestic temples were all around and he dares to say he doesn't live in these. And he goes on, there are several negatives in Acts chapter 17. So somehow there is the denouncing of that which is wrong. It's not you have done wrong, it's we have done wrong. And yet this winsome pointing to a God of love who still will act in mercy. We are not free to choose our own message. We have to be faithful to the word of God. The whole issue of hell here, it's a bit of a, a tangent. and I find it a difficult one because... He who loved the most warned the most. So Jesus speaks about hell, doesn't he? And yet today, if you speak about hell, it's almost as if you're a weirdo. Almost you're over the top. You're a bit oddball, fruitcake-ish. But we have to warn. So somehow we have to 
warn about hell and judgment in a way that doesn't make us look like we're weirdos. And it's a lot to do with tone and the facial expression and the aggressiveness or non-aggressiveness of the way we say it. We want to speak so we don't cut off people's ears. Peter was called to be the preacher, but if you remember, he cut off the high priest's servant's ear. A preacher should never cut off an ear. We, we are to get the ear and keep their attention and share truth. But our message is not ours to choose. Secondly, our lifestyle is not ours to control. God doesn't promise us good fortune. It's not in our job description. We we go where God would have us go. We do what God would have us do. Human beings are acting, British, Western human beings, acting in the weirdest way. They're almost like, they're like bulls with their heads down and their eyes shut and they're charging at thick brick walls. No, it's going to smash their head in, but we're going to do it anyway. And here we are as Christians. And we're working with these people and it can be dangerous to work with bulls who are charging. Skipton is a lovely, lovely town. And um, uh, the Sunday Times two years ago said it's the best place to, to be in the UK. I think they spelt Skipton wrongly. They actually meant Y-O-R-K-S-H-I-R-E. But anyway, they said Skipton. <coughs> two or three years ago, the Anglican church, which sort of overlooks the whole of the market town, um, they needed a new vicar. And it's not an evangelical church, and it's a very barren spiritual area. So I got in touch with a friend of mine, a curate, who I thought, do you know you would be absolutely ideal for this church? And I got in touch and said, would you, would you apply for this job? Do you know what he said to me? Roger, if I applied for that job and got it, my children would have no Christian friends to play with. I just couldn't believe it. Especially as I'd just recently read the biography of Bishop Haddington, who left his wife and four sons and went to Uganda as a missionary and was martyred there. Was he right? I know the pendulum swing is not right. What has happened to sacrifice and to costliness? Talk to Derek. Um, He's a vicar, but he left a very, very comfortable area to go into a very challenging situation just a year ago in Runcorn. And you sort of want to take your hat off to a Derek guest and say, wow, to go from there to there. And praise the Lord, the Lord's using him. We need more of that spirit. And talk to him because it's very encouraging what's happening in that that tough area these days. (coughs) True prophets, true men, proclaimers of the word of God are always in the minority. We need somehow to be more committed to receiving the smile of God than the approval of men. And that doesn't come naturally. We, we like people to come to us and say, oh, you're doing a good job. You're saying nice things and da, da, da. We really like what's, what's going on. And then the third final truth, and time's virtually gone, but our creature comforts are not to be our consideration. Fruitfulness is to be our consideration and our obedience to God. If we're going to be faithful to God and his word, there will be suffering 
and there will be isolation. And whatever they say, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, calling names won't hurt me. They do hurt. Words do wound. But they are part of the price that we pay and we give our wounds as well as our successes to the Lord and say, Lord, this is all for you. This is all for you. So Micaiah ends up in a royal prison. David Earnshaw often says a martyr is a person who loves truth more than life. I'd want to go a little bit further and say a martyr who is somebody who loves Christ more than life. And of course, Christ and truth are the same, but we love him. And if that means I don't have the most comfortable of lives, I don't have the luxuries, the holidays, the, the breaks and all the rest that nevertheless, I'm here to serve Christ with every bit of energy and strength and passion, my time, my money, Everything about me is, is to be given over to him. That will mean I'm swimming against the tide. The world wants us to just accept and affirm their lifestyle, but we say, no, 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 no. God has a different way, and it begins turning from your sin and looking towards the cross, daring to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose through it. And the next line is the hardest, dare to make it known. Do you know that little illustration in Jim Packer's Knowing God where he talks about Ryle when he was in some big church service and the bishops were all at the front and they were, as it were, sideways on facing each other and the vast congregation was all looking at them and there came a moment when everybody was to stand and turn and face the quote-unquote altar. But Ryle knew that was not an altar and he wasn't willing to turn and face it. So the moment came when they all stood, but he remained seated. But actually, if he just remained seated, nobody would have noticed. But he just slightly moved his body, leaned forward, so everybody could see he was not standing to turn to face the altar. That little oscillation of his body, such a stand for the things of God. And in love and meekness and gentleness and humility with winsomeness and care, we share the truth, even if it hurts. One last thing. Isn't this what Jesus did? He's our prophet, priest and king. Didn't he speak when it would have been much easier to be silent? Wasn't he silent when it would have been much easier to speak? Wasn't he willing to go alone to the cross and die for us? Is the disciple to be above the master? Never. I, I just think, Micaiah, I salute you. I take off my, my hat to you. And, and Micaiah, I hope, knows that in eternity I've asked if we can spend a few thousand years together just to talk about this incident. And who knows, eventually in eternity that might be granted. The prophets, so much to learn from them. And <clears throat> I do believe we need to get into them to understand the sort of right balance of living in today's society, but always remembering we're not called to be prophets as such, but evangelists heralding good news. Amen. Now, my time has...